0: We are in our series, Movement and, and Multiplication, and uh, last week, Deborah uh, brought us to a point in this series. We're working our way through the book of Acts, and um, we started off in, actually, chapter one uh, over a year ago. We did a, sm- a small series then, and we, start, we picked it up again uh, this autumn, um, and uh, Deborah brought us to, uh, last week, to this place here, the Time of Peace. Um, and she spoke about how there's a season for everything and a time for everything under heaven, including a time of peace and what we need to do within that, within that uh, season. Um, today, we're actually, th- the next verse kind of jumps three years. So this period of peace, this time of peace, is, is a period of three years. And then we come to, um, we, we go back to Peter. So we started off with Peter at the beginning of Acts. We then moved through um, Uh, Stephen, and we looked at Philip's journey, we looked at Saul, and then Saul's conversion a couple of weeks ago. We had this time of peace in the church, and now we're coming back to Peter, where we're going to stay for the next couple of chapters in Acts. Um, So, we're at chapter 9 in Acts, if you have a Bible. If you don't, don't worry, it's on the screen there. And we're going to read a few verses, starting at verse 32, which will take us to the end of the chapter. So let me read this, let's read this together. As Peter travelled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people. No, have I skipped a screen? There we go. As Peter travelled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Anais, who was paralysed and had been bedridden for eight years. Anais, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Anais got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. And then verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. And about that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and he prayed. (coughs) Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. And this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner, named Simon. So that's our passage for today and this is a a, a, uh, event and this is a story that um, Luke, Dr Luke, recorded for us and it's filled with faith, filled with so much faith and what we're going to try and do is to draw out today uh, certain aspects of faith that we find in this event. We know that faith is not just an abstract concept, faith leads to actions, it leads to a response and it leads to a result. So, um, my title today is Faith Leads To. It's very, very simple, Faith (coughs) Leads uh, To. And we're going to look at uh, actually four different things from this passage that faith uh, led to. Now, it might seem like quite a simple telling of a couple of historical events, um, that you know, Peter did. He went and healed this para- uh, guy who was paralyzed and he raised this girl from the dead um, and that's it. But actually there is a lot more to this story. There's so much power in the details given to us by, by Luke. And you might be sat there thinking, actually this story sounds a little bit familiar. I r- kind of recognize aspects of this story. I certainly do. Um, it sounds familiar to me. Every morning during the week, I go into my son's Gideon's bedroom and I say to him, Gideon, get up. And then I go into JJ's room and I say, JJ, get up. And the weird thing is that the result that Peter gets with the paralyzed guy and the dead woman is actually far better than the result that I get talking to my teenage sons. I say, get up and it doesn't happen. Obviously, I'm not talking about that. All right. Uh, so there's familiarity between this story and uh, a couple of events in Jesus' own life. And I'm sure you've already picked, picked uh, up on some of these things. Um, there's a direct parallel uh, between, there's at least two occasions in Jesus' ministry where he said to a paralyzed guy, take up your mat and get up. Take up your mat and get up. And, and we see that's what Peter uh, the way that Peter spoke to the same uh, the person with the same problem. And also we read in, in Mark's Gospel about um, Jairus, the synagogue leader, who came to Jesus because his daughter was uh, sick. And actually I'm just going to read this short passage to you. Um, this event is actually recorded in three of the Gospels. I'm just going to read it to you from the book of uh, Mark, from Mark's Gospel. Uh, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. And at this point, two things happen um, in the the telling of the event. Uh, The first thing that happens is Uh, While he's on his way to Jairus' house, a lady who's been suffering from bleeding comes up and touches him to get healed. And it kind of interrupts the journey a little bit. And the second thing that happens at this point is a messenger comes from the house and says, Look, don't worry, it's too late. Uh, The daughter has already died. Um, But let's carry on reading from verse 38. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child isn't dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha, come, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. So we're going to come back to the healing of the lady who was bleeding later towards the end. But in both of these events, in in Peter raising uh, uh, the girl from the dead and Jesus raising this girl from the dead, there's similarities. We know that a girl has died. We know that there's a messenger or somebody sent to bring help. We know that the situation appears hopeless. We know that there's a a crowd of mourners who, um, both Jesus and Peter as well, Outside the room, we know that there are very few few words used um, in terms of the miracle, and we know that the end result is life, and then amazement and astonishment in the people who witness the event. So there's a lot of things going on that are similar in both the, both these um, stories. We can see numerous threads of connection, and interestingly, we know that Peter was one of the few people who were present when Jesus raised. Jairus' daughter. And so we can tell that Peter is just simply following Jesus' example. He's doing what he saw Jesus do. And that's our first important faith lesson right there. Faith leads to imitation. And I'm sure we've had people in our lives who inspire us, whether it's a a teacher at school who inspired us, or a a parent maybe, uh, or a grandparent Or some other relationship, Um, maybe it's a pastor or a youth leader in your life, somebody who actually changed the way you behave by the way they lived and they inspired you and you wanted to model their behaviour, you wanted to imitate their behaviour and there was something about that person, the way that they handled themselves, the way they spoke, the results that they achieved that encouraged you to imitate them, to emulate them and Paul writing to the Corinthian uh, church, uh, made this statement. He said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Um, It's kind of a long way of saying, copy me as I copy Jesus. Actually, it's a long way of saying, copy Jesus, really. That's what he's saying. As I I do what Jesus does, you do what I do. But essentially, do what Jesus does. And could we use this same language about ourselves? Could we say about ourselves, Copy me, yeah, as I follow the example of Jesus. Yeah. Do we feel confident that we are following, or we do what Jesus does? We, we emulate Jesus' actions enough that we could say that. We know that while Jesus was on the earth, that's what he did. Um, uh, John, writing, uh, makes these statements. There's three statements in three different parts of uh, his writings. This is Jesus speaking, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So Jesus imitates the Father. He goes on to say, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater than these, because I am going to the Father. And then again, John writing in one of his letters says, This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. We must copy, we must emulate Jesus. And emulate is a word that's obviously used for imitation. It's also used in computer language and it means uh, you have a device or a piece of software that reproduces the function or an action of something else. And really that's what Peter was doing. In these two healings, he was emulating Jesus. He was He was emulating Jesus' function in this situation. He he was responding in the same way, right down to even the words that he spoke. And our faith in Jesus should cause us uh, to see the way that Jesus lived and inspire us to imitate him. Um, We read read about uh, Tabitha, uh, this disciple, um, in the passage that we read from Acts. It says, in Joppa there was this disciple named Tabitha. She was always doing good and helping the poor. So we can see that Tabitha lived a life that imitated Jesus. She was doing what Jesus did. um, Doing good, helping the poor. And it's interesting here that Luke uh, calls her a disciple. Now, the word that Luke uses for disciple is the only time this word is used. It means a female disciple, matatria. Usually the word for disciple is in the male context, uh, matatas. This is the only time in the whole of the Bible where it's used. So we know that Tabitha was a disciple. Um, Being a disciple of Jesus means to imitate him, to emulate him, to do what he did, just like Tabitha. So how can we do the same? We could start, um, you know, doing good and helping the poor. We've got a great opportunity this afternoon and all this week to come and pack boxes of food and sort food out, helping the poor, doing good. Okay, I'm sure Tabitha would have been right down here doing that. And we 100% understand that we we don't do good works and help the poor in order to rack up credit with God. That's not how it works. It doesn't save us. Yeah, we don't do these works in order to uh, somehow get in God's good books. That's, that's not what it's about. But at the same time, we understand that real true faith always, always leads to action. It always leads to a, a, a response. Someone who has truly tasted and experienced the saving work of Jesus um, will, like Tabitha, be full of good works. Okay, Um, so we read that, uh, about that time, Tabitha became sick and died and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Which is interesting as well because Tabitha died and the people didn't anoint her for burial. They didn't wrap her in in death clothes, in grave clothes. They, they weren't preparing her to be buried, uh, which is our second thing that faith leads to. Our faith leads to expectation. So faith leads to imitation, but also faith leads to expectation. These followers of Jesus, these disciples who were there when Tabitha died, were expectant. They were full of faith. They were expecting that if they could bring Peter from where he was staying, they could expect a miracle. And just in the same way that Jairus went to fetch Jesus when his daughter was ill, and just in the same way that that lady touched the edge of his his garment, there's an expectation there. And these people sent two people to fetch Peter from uh, where he was staying in Lydda and bring him to Joppa, which is a journey of about 12 miles. Now I know I don't have to tell you this, but there is a mighty, mighty power in expectation mighty power in expecting things. A few weeks ago uh, we had on the platform here a guy from India, Pastor Abraham, here, the guy who has planted all those thousands of churches and actually really stood out to me. One of the things he said, amongst other things, was um, he's speaking over this church, he talked about having, uh, having an expectancy, expecting God To do things and Vicki Simpson two weeks ago did the same thing. She talked in one of the services about how um, we need to have an expectant mindset. We need to be coming to church ready and expecting God to move, expecting God to do great things and also live our life with an expectation that God has put this power in us uh, to do things. One of the reasons I love our earthquake uh, events that we hold every quarter is because we have them. And Peter, people come, you guys come, and you're expectant. Yes. You guys walk in the room, say, like, oh, okay, what's going to happen tonight? Something's going to happen. Something great is going to happen this evening. And invariably, it does. It does. It does. We come expecting, and things happen. It, faith leads to the, to the miraculous. Um, we're looking at a verse Uh, at the moment there's a prophetic verse over the church that Mark brought uh, actually he he brought it first a couple of years ago but it's it's kind of rekindled itself in the last few weeks Isaiah 37:30, in the third year sow and reap plant vineyards and their fruit that verse spoken over this church should lead to an expectation it should lead to okay we know that if we sow we're going to reap fruit God has given us this season to sow and reap a harvest we should be expecting things. God seems to move much more freely in an, in an atmosphere of expectancy and faith. As a worship team, we see it all the time. When, when the congregation is, is coming in and they're ready to move, just the power of God is tangible. Yeah, yeah. And we should have that all the time. We can have that all the time, guys. Um, I would go as far as to saying that actually it's one of the biggest catalysts for a move of God, is coming with an expectation yeah. uh, I read somewhere, I can't remember who said it but uh, they said this one of the char- characteristics of a healthy growing church is a higher level of expectancy yeah, a higher level of expectancy because it leads to faith mm-hmm. David writing in the Psalms, said this I waited patiently for the Lord and that word waited is not sitting there passively it's an active, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a hopeful, expectant, faith-filled waiting I waited patiently for the Lord, he turned to me and heard my cry and we read it again uh, uh, earlier on in the book of Acts with the, um, the lame guy that Peter and John uh, healed. It's so, and it said, the man gave them his attention expecting yeah. to get something from them. Are we living our life expecting something yeah. uh, to happen? Yeah. Expecting God to move? In 1949, a man, a 55-year-old guy called Jake... Uh, Worm, worm, W-U-R-M, unfortunate name, but that's its the true story. Um, He was a 55 year old desperate guy. He was penniless, he was hopeless, he was unemployed. And you may already know this story. He was walking along the beach in California and he came across a, a bottle in the sand that had been washed up from the sea. And he picked up the bottle and the lid was still on the bottle, it was still sealed. And he looked inside and there was a note inside this bottle. This is absolutely a true story. And he, he broke the bottle on a, on a rock and he took out this piece of paper and he read the note. And it said this, I, Daisy Alexander, do hereby will my estate uh, to my attorney and to the lucky person who finds this note. And it was dated June the 30th, 1936. So 12 years before it was dated. Now, Jake lo- looked at the note and he smiled to himself and he thought, oh, yeah, it's just a prank. And he almost threw it away. But something... Uh, made him hold on to it, and he put it in his pocket, he took it home, and went to his dresser, popped it in the drawer, and left it there. And it stayed there for quite a while. Uh, a while later, he was talking to one of his friends, and he, ex- he said, oh, he remembered the note, and he, he showed his friend this note, and he said, oh, look what I found uh, all this time back. And his friend said, you do know who Daisy Alexander was, don't you? And he said, no, never heard of her. And he explained that actually Daisy Alexander was, was Daisy Alexander's singer, who was the heiress to the Singer sewing machine family fortunes. <laughs> and, and he encouraged Jake, he said, you should investigate this, you never know. And so Jake di- did and he discovered that it was all true. <coughs> Twelve years before, this lady, quite an eccentric lady by all accounts, <laughs> had written, this was her will, and money to divide it up between her attorney and half to the guy who found the note and she threw it in the Thames in London. And over 12 years, they had to get a, an oceanographer and a mathematician to come and prove that it would take 12 years to get from the River Thames in London, uh, through uh, the sea, the Atlantic Sea, around the Pacific, I guess, and onto the beach in California. And he arrived there and um, he ended up inheriting millions of dollars, completely changing his life. And I just thought that was so interesting. And it makes you think that for all that time, he owned this note and it was stuck. ...in that drawer, because he had no expectation that it would mean anything. He had no expectation that this note could do anything for his life. He thought it was a prank. And it didn't do anything Mm. until he took it out of the drawer. Until he did something with it. And part of our own inheritance as followers of Jesus... ...is to do the things and to see the results that Jesus himself saw. That is our inheritance. But if we don't have any expectation of that... ...it's like putting that note into the drawer... We're not going to see any results of it until we we take that inheritance, have an expectation, believe in it, and pray and talk to God in a way that believes this is actually the way that things are. Expectation is crucial to operating in the power of God. So we imitate Jesus and we expect him to show up when we ask him in faith. So as well as understanding that Peter, uh, when he was uh, performing these miracles, Um, he imitated Jesus and there was an expectation among the people that Jesus would show up and do something. We also need to see that Peter actually put Jesus right at the center of both events. Um, In verse 34, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ was right there and in the second uh, miracle Peter sent them all out of the room, he sent all the people out and then he got down on his knees and prayed actually just like Jairus did falling on his knees before Jesus and just like the lady who was bleeding falling on her knees before Jesus there's humility involved so we come to God not with a a prideful assumption it's not some kind of uh, paint by numbers tick all the boxes get the results we want but we do come with a with a humble expectation with a humble expectation that God's got a plan and God is going to move. Not in our power, but the power of Jesus. So we need to have humility. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, Humility is not thinking of less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. I realise I've written thinking. Yeah, anyway, there we go. <laughs> thinking. Humility is not thinking of less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So we put God, we make him the uh, managing partner, if you like, in this deal. He wants to work through us, but it's actually all through him and through the name of Jesus that things happen. So, what was Peter thinking after he kicked everybody out of the room, and he was left alone? He kicked all the mourners out, he kicked all the widows, all the wailers, and, and he sat, he's standing there in his room, all alone. And there's no indication from Scripture that he'd ever raised anybody from the dead before. Um, he's just there on his own. And I can imagine him thinking, right, Okay, what should I do here? Okay, I think I ought to pray. I really ought to pray. That's, that's what Jesus would have done. Actually, this is quite serious. There's a dead body there. Maybe I should get down on my knees. Yeah, let's take it to another level. Let's get serious about this. Um, that's a good idea. And we don't know how long that he was on his knees and how long he was praying for. We have no idea the words he used. Oh, You know, I would imagine there was a little bit of, oh, there was a lot of faith there, but also a little bit of, yeah, God, I need you. I need you to show up. I'm sure there was humility there. We don't know what he was thinking. Maybe he was thinking back. Maybe he was remembering the time that Jesus had sent him and the other apostles out with the authority to uh, cast out demons and heal the sick and raise the dead. Jesus actually said to them, I give you authority to go and do this. And maybe Peter was just encouraging himself with that, with that memory. Maybe he was remembering the time when they were... Uh, outside the city, and a funeral procession came by, and Jesus said uh, to, the, to the dead, to the dead body, he said, "Young man, I tell you, get up." And the young man got up. Maybe he was remembering Lazarus, who had been four days dead, when Jesus used the words that called him out of the tomb and brought him back to life. Maybe he was remembering Jesus resurrection. Maybe he was remembering the passage that we read, Jairus' daughter. And, and uh, Jesus said to the, to, the, uh, to the body in that point, Talitha, koem, which means little girl, get up. And I think it's interesting that apart from one letter, Peter uses the exact same words. Jesus says, Talitha, koem, little girl, get up. Peter dresses her by her name, Tabitha, koem, get up. Now, I'm not going to read more into it than we need to, I just think it's interesting, there's, a, there's an imitation there, and um, Peter using similar words. And the result, we know, uh, in Peter's case, was identical to the result when Jesus did it. His faith led to imitation. His faith led to an expectation, and his faith led to this resuscitation. Um, And we also read what happens after these miracles, which is again um, really interesting. It said all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw Anais, the guy who had been paralysed, and turned to the Lord. And then in verse 42, this became known all over Joppa, this is the raising of the girl, and many people believed in the Lord. So that's our third thing that faith leads to. It leads to acclamation. It should lead to God being exalted and acclaimed and glorified. And in these cases, it does. This is the crux of everything. God gets the glory. People get saved. And if you think about it, that's actually a far greater miracle. There's a far greater miracle in people receiving salvation, people getting eternal life. Um, the signs and the wonders that take place throughout the book of Acts, they're not the end result. They're not, we don't have these miracles just for the sake of having miracles. Uh, it tells us at one point that they are, they are the confirmation of the message of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is that we can be saved, that we can put our trust in Jesus and we can be saved and we can receive eternal life and the signs and wonders are a confirmation of that. If we go looking for miracles, if we go looking for signs and wonders for, um, uh, so that our ministry is built up or so that we get acclaimed or so that people will think more of us, uh, then we're on a pathway to pride and we know where pride leads. It leads to destruction. Everything we do in Jesus' name should flow uh, from a heart that understands what a privilege it is to serve him, to serve Jesus. Acknowledging who he is, making him bigger, making ourselves smaller and seeing that our faith in whatever measure, however it manifests itself, whatever signs and wonders are led from our faith actually should lead to the acclamation and the exaltation of God. So we come to the final verse then that we looked at, which may seem like a bit of an odd add-on to the story. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. But actually this is crucial in the story, in the event. This is absolutely uh, crucial. A tanner was someone who worked with dead animals and dead animal skins. And so under Jewish law, this person, Simon, would have been classed as unclean. He would have been some... Uh, Classed as somebody who you shouldn't be in contact with. Um, Because under Jewish law, if you were unclean and you came into contact with somebody else, you made them unclean as well. Your uncleanness, uh, your impurities passed on to other people. So somebody who worked with dead animals would have been unclean. And here's Peter staying with this guy and um, essentially beginning to lay aside his... His, his own knowledge, his preoccupation with, his, his rigid following of, of the letter of the Jewish law. And this is going to bear even more fruit next week um, when Mark takes us into chapter 10. But there's another parallel between this verse and that passage that we, I talked about earlier with the lady coming up to Jesus because she had been bleeding um, for, for all those years. And our, f- our fourth thing that faith leads to is purification, it leads to cleanliness. So, Jesus, then, uh, in, in the Gospel of Mark, is on his way to Jairus' house, and on the way, uh, something happens. We are told that this woman has had this condition that causes her to bleed. She's had this condition for 12 years, and she is so desperate for relief. It tells us, uh, uh, in fact, in two of the Gospels, it tells us that she has spent all her money on doctors. Uh, it's interesting that Dr. Luke doesn't mention that. Um, <laughs> It says she spent all her money on doctors, and uh, she's even worse than she was when she started. Um, But uh, she comes up to Jesus, and it feels like a little bit of a last resort, and we read this. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. This is a lady who has for so long not been able to have contact with people. She's considered unclean by society and we can imagine that this has affected all of her relationships. We don't know if she was married, but imagine not being able to have any physical contact with your husband for 12 years. What's that going to do to your relationship? We don't know if she had children. Imagine not being able to have any physical contact with your children for all that time, or if you, if you do, knowing that actually, even to the law, they're going to be made unclean. This would have been desperate, desperate, desperate for this lady. And then she heard about Jesus. And maybe that's you, maybe you're hearing about Jesus today. And, it's, and you can relate to this suffering. You've been uh, suffering physically, emotionally, Uh, Mentally, maybe you're thinking, maybe if I can just get close to Jesus, maybe it's a last resort for you. Maybe you're just thinking, I don't know, I don't know if this will work, but I'm willing to give this a go. I'm willing to give this a go. If I just get close to Jesus, if I can just touch Jesus, maybe I can, maybe I can get clean. Maybe I can get healing. And we read that Jesus wants to know who has touched him. And so he turns and asks the crowd, you know, who touched me? I I felt power go out of me. Who who was the person who touched me? And again, this is another desperate moment for this lady who knows that what she has done in the eyes of the law has made Jesus unclean. She touched Jesus and she's passed her uncleanness onto him. What's she going to do? She could maybe slink away. Her body, it says that she was freed from her suffering immediately Maybe, oh, I can just walk away now, I've got got the healing but maybe she's thinking, what if I go away and and I go back to what I can the, the disease comes back It tells us, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear told him the whole truth He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you go in peace and be freed from your suffering She comes up to him falls at his feet and she tells him not just the truth she tells him the whole truth she doesn't say, oh I stumbled and I fell and I touched you or somebody in the crowd bumped into me and I accidentally touched you it'd be easy to do that it'd be easy to to cover it up a little bit or say a little bit of the truth she doesn't say, I was just admiring your lovely garment here I just wanted to have a feel of it She comes up and she tells him the whole truth. She tells him what she has done and I'm sure in this she's admitting what she's done, which is I've made you unclean. I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Why? Why did Jesus make her do this? Why did he turn around and say, you know, was there any need for this? Well actually it's because Jesus, he wants to heal but actually more importantly he wants a relationship. He wanted a relationship with this woman He wanted her to to talk to him, to to engage with him to to understand that she needn't live, live with the guilt of what she'd done and he's able to tell her, your faith has healed you, go in peace Get rid of that fear, you don't need that fear You don't need to feel that guilt anymore, you can go in peace Be freed from your suffering What Jesus did was actually to completely turn on its head this idea of unclean things, making clean things unclean He said, no, 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 it doesn't work like that anymore When you're unclean and you come to cleanliness it turns around, the cleanliness is passed to you Jesus' purity, Jesus' righteousness is passed to you and gets rid of your uncleanness Turn it completely on, that's the exchange that Jesus is wanting to make this morning with us Um, This is the amazing exchange that he offers us, our uncleanliness is replaced with his righteousness as we come to him